welcome to 1867 and all that. Season 2, Episode 6, Thomas Darcy McGee's rather eventful St. Patrick's Day. To John A. Macdonald and the other ministers from Canada West, it must have seemed like a great mob of unrest descending upon them. The Corrigan murder and the subsequent public outrage over the failures of justice in the case were the most public manifestations of growing discontent in the western section of the so-called United Province. If the government ministers didn't do something, the result could be ugly. By 1857, George Brown stood as the leading exponent of a popular brand of regional and religious discontent, decrying French domination and expounding on what he saw as an imperialistic papacy and Catholicism that were threatening to expand around the world and, in his corner of it in particular, Upper Canada. Such views, of course, made Brown persona non grata in much of the eastern section of the province, but in the capital of Toronto and all regions west, there was a growing sense that Brown and those of his ilk were talking sense. Although the McNabb government fell and was reformed, minus McNabb, as the Macdonald-Taché government, the newish liberal conservative government faced exactly the same problem. How to ensure the support of the large bulk of members from French Catholic Lower Canada while at the same time now minimizing the discontent of the Western section. Few politicians really held that the idea of the double majority was entirely workable, that is, that a government needed a majority in both Western and Eastern sections of the colony, but in practice it had become contentious to rule without support in both sections. And government, for some time now, had essentially relied upon a majority of supporters in the former Lower Canada, supported by only a minority of supporters in the Western section. On a case-by-case basis in this era when parties were very loose, members could vote as they wished, and governments could try to entice those in the opposition to vote with them on matters related to their interests. But as we saw with separate schools, this wasn't always followed. In that case, a majority from the eastern section had imposed separate schools on the western section against the votes of the westerners. In a different guise, the seat of government issue, deciding which city would be the capital, threatened the government, but in an even more dramatic fashion, because it pissed off everyone outside the one area that would get the capital. That's what had ostensibly brought down McNabb's government. Well, that and the ambition of the liberals in the liberal conservative government to get rid of him in particular. It seemed impossible to please anyone at all, given that so many different areas had their own ambitions. In 1857, though, the new head of the government, John A. Macdonald, showed the kind of political skill that would become his trademark. Perhaps the government ought to remove the whole matter from politics altogether, he mused. And how could you do this? Well, by pushing the decision up the chain of command, right to the very top, to Queen Victoria. In March of 1857, Macdonald notified Parliament that his government had formally requested that the Queen advise on the location of the capital of Canada. In the heated debate that followed, a number of figures already seemed to know that the place Her Majesty would choose would likely be the town of Ottawa, or what had been until recently, Bytown. It was, in some ways, the most unlikely of choices because the region had almost no constituency whatsoever to back it. 
On the other hand, Ottawa was conveniently located on the border between Upper and Lower Canada, so it sort of solved that problem. It was also removed somewhat from the Great Lakes and the American border and was therefore more defensible. The choice, MacDonald claimed, should be up to Her Majesty. Of course, the critics complained that really the choice would be up to her advisors and her Canadian advisors like MacDonald at that. Nonetheless, it was an adroit political move, foisting the decision onto the crown and then daring his opponents in this hyper-loyal colony to criticize Her Majesty. MacDonald defended himself and the government, arguing that no government could settle the issue. The fault, he said, was not with the government, but with the sectionalism of the legislature. He could as easily have said the sectionalism of Canada itself, such was the divisiveness of the so-called United Province in the mid-1850s. With the capital issue put off, at least for the foreseeable future, the government could turn to other matters. And just to give you a flavor of the era, because really I'm skipping over a lot here. At the time, the legislature was passing bills on such things as the management of railways, of course, but also expanding married women's property rights, requiring that juvenile offenders be treated differently than their adult counterparts, and the little question of sending a delegate to London to represent Canada in a British inquiry into the whole question of the western lands over which the Hudson's Bay Company held title and a monopoly of trade. At a time when the last tracts of really viable agricultural land in the Canadas were being filled up, this whole question of expansion westward and the acquisition of new lands attracted a great deal of interest. And you know we'll be talking a good deal more about this next season. But for now, it's enough to know that the government was so, so spooked by sectional unrest, especially in the West, that it wanted to put the whole seat of government issue on ice. It wanted to avoid any talk of separate schools, and it also hoped that the Corrigan case could be safely defanged by interminably long committee hearings. If you'll permit me a bit of editorializing, I might say that it reminds me a good deal of the later Prime Minister Mackenzie King, William Lyon Mackenzie's grandson, of course. King governed for more than 21 years by dulling passions and coming at every issue obliquely. Frank Scott, the famous lawyer and poet, yes, really, lawyer and poet, uh, his famous poem about King remarked that King's motto ought to have been, do nothing by halves, which can be done by quarters. And so it was in 1857. The government wanted to frustrate, limit, postpone and smooth over the tensions that threatened to tear the province apart. They did, though, have to go to the people, that is, call an election. And this is exactly what they did at the end of 1857. By this point, and please bear with me on this, the revolving door of leaders from Lower Canada turned on its hinges one more time. This time, it was Etienne Taché who was suffering from ill health and who wanted to retire. Remember that Taché had replaced Morin, who had himself replaced La Fontaine. Got it? No, you might not, but because everyone's moving about so quickly. Uh, but there is good news, because the man who's coming in to replace Taché will stick around for a while. His name was Georges-Étienne Cartier, future father of Confederation and soon-to-be best mate of Johnny MacDonald. 
Karche, you might recall from the very first episode of this whole podcast back in season one, had distinguished himself as a youthful supporter of rebellion in 1837, only to rethink the wisdom of this approach in the aftermath of that debacle. He soon joined with Lafontaine and came to think that the Union of the Canadas, even though it had been established to wreck French Canada, could actually be made to work for his people. What was needed was constitutional reform along the lines of responsible government. Cartier was a lawyer in private life, and though he was politically connected, he did not really come into politics until 1848 in the Lafontaine-Baldwin government that had brought along responsible government, and of course the glorious mess that was the Rebellion Losses Bill. Cartier was also a railway man. In the early 1850s, the new Grand Trunk Railway had hired Cartier to be its legal advisor in Canada East, a lucrative position that would give Cartier a fair amount of money, but also political hassle for the rest of his career. By the mid-1850s, Cartier had risen through the ranks to be in a position to take over the political leadership, even if devoting more time to politics rather than business probably meant a pay cut. Cartier had accepted a spot in government as a minister, and then with Taché retiring, Cartier stepped into the leadership of the French section. So, just a few days before the election call, you have the creation of what would now be called the Macdonald-Cartier government. The election of 1857 provided pretty much what you would expect. In Cartier's section of Lower Canada, the people backed the government with overwhelming numbers though there were some Rouge and independents elected, and Cartier himself actually lost his seat in Montreal and had to run elsewhere. It was not uncommon at this time for ministers to run in more than one riding to hedge their bets. In Upper Canada, though, the government faced a tougher battle. The regional resentment that had been burning hot for some time now showed itself in the election results. George Brown and other reformers won a majority of seats in the western section. But the government's win in Lower Canada had been so large that the supporters of the government were fairly sure that they had a decent majority to allow them to continue. So everyone went off for their Christmas holiday safe in the knowledge that the Macdonald-Cartier ministry would be returned. It's worth repeating, though, that so many members of Parliament were what were called loose fish that is, could not automatically be counted upon to support the government of their so-called party on every issue, that the status of the government, the confidence of the assembly in the government, could not be guaranteed. If you had to choose one word for government in this era, many historians would pick, and have picked, unstable. So far, with my focus on the Corrigan murder and the Gavazzi riots, you might have the impression that the injustices of religious rivalries all ran in one direction, that Protestants in the Canadas could get no justice, especially in heavily Catholic Lower Canada. This, though, would be mistaken. Not that both the Gavazzi and the Corrigan cases didn't show injustices, for surely they did, but Canadian Catholics had their own stories of Protestant domination and Catholic persecution. That is very much in the nature of this kind of identity politics, whether we're talking about race, sex, and gender issues that dominate in the 21st century or the religious and racial politics of the 1850s. Each group is always certain that its own group is horribly oppressed. And every once in a while, sometimes quite often, 
cases emerge which prove, absolutely prove, that one's own side is persecuted and can get no justice. It's almost as if, I'll say somewhat sarcastically, that basing one's politics on an us-versus-them identity categories was a bad idea. Okay, but to put us firmly back in the 1850s, what I'm leading us into here is an introduction to a man who has just come onto the scene, but who I haven't yet introduced. He has been elected to Parliament in the December 1857 elections after only having just arrived in the country six months earlier from Ireland via the United States. I'm speaking of Thomas Darcy McGee. Now, if you know anything about Darcy McGee, it might be that he was assassinated, that a gunman snuck up behind him in the dark streets of Ottawa as he came home one night and shot him dead. Who exactly shot him and why is still the subject of debate. Darcy McGee was a man who ignited people's passions, especially those of his fellow Irish. He was nothing if not changeable. From his days as a a young revolutionary, to his time in the United States advocating the annexation of Canada, to his final days as an Irish moderate, anti-Republican and Canadian nationalist, Darcy McGee fervently believed a lot of things. He was, as his biographer David Wilson says about him, an extreme moderate. In 1857, he had come to Montreal at the invitation of the local Irish community. By this time, McGee had turned into a critic of the United States and an advocate of Irish Catholic rights. He was a proud Irish nationalist, but he spoke out fervently against violent revolution in his homeland and especially in British North America. In every city of North America that he ended up, whether it was New York, Boston, Buffalo, or finally Montreal, he started a newspaper in which to expound his views. When he arrived in Montreal, though, he had a decision to make. Who exactly should should he support politically? On which side should he fall? Should he join the liberal conservatives who contained amongst their number large swathes of his co-religionists and who defended Catholic rights, including the rights of separate school education? It would have seemed a logical choice, except this party also garnered the support of the Protestant Orange Order, and McGee was nothing if not an ardent critic of the Orange Lodge. Well then, how about George Brown and his reformers, with whom McGee shared a number of beliefs, including their strong advocacy of westward expansion and political liberalism? While those ideas matched, McGee and some other Irish Catholics worried about Brown's criticism of separate schools and the possibility that Brown's main plank, representation by population, could wash away the aspirations of Catholics in a sea of upper Canadian Protestant votes. Neither side seemed exactly the right fit. So for the moment at least, McGee stayed put and ran as an independent liberal. When Parliament met in the new year in Toronto, McGee made quite an impression with his first speech. By its eloquence and wit, yes, but also by the offense it caused. McGee had the audacity to suggest, in Toronto of all places, that it was inappropriate for the head of the government, for John A. Macdonald, to be a member of the Orange Order and associate himself with its litany of illegal acts. Probably a fair point, but it certainly didn't go over well. Such was the vitriol in certain circles that there were rumors that McGee was to be assassinated. It almost came to be the next month at Toronto's St. Patrick's Day festivities in March 
of 1858. This day, of course, is the annual celebration of Ireland's patron saint. The day could be and was celebrated by all Irish, Protestant, and Catholic, but it had especially become a day of national awakening for Irish Catholics. The day started out all wrong when a Protestant Orangeman decided that what Toronto really needed was for him to drive his horse-drawn cab right into the middle of the Catholic St. Patrick's Day Parade. Not surprisingly, crowds surrounded him to let him know this wasn't such a good idea. The Orangeman's friends came to his aid and, what do you know, a riot broke out. Paraders clashed with Orangemen and one man was stabbed and later died from his wounds. Later in the day, a crowd of Orangemen also attacked a priest, shouting, Away with you, you damned papist! Later that evening, local dignitaries, both Protestant and Catholic, gathered for public festivities. The two sides, at least some of the dignitaries at any rate, tried to soothe tensions, and each side sent well wishes to the other. But they didn't represent all the views of those on the street. When Darcy McGee left the Catholic dinner that was being held at the National Hotel, a crowd descended upon his carriage, and he only barely managed to escape. With McGee gone, angry orangemen lobbed projectiles at the National Hotel where other Irish Catholic dignitaries were still celebrating. Those inside threw rocks and other projectiles back. Windows smashed, blood flowed. In the end, the riot had wrecked the National Hotel. Now, I've seen my share of St. Patrick's Day messes, but nothing quite like this. The one key thing to come out of it, though, was that it made Darcy McGee an Irish Catholic hero. The crowd had been after him, and he'd escaped. There's nothing like an almost martyrdom to stir hope and ambition. When McGee returned to Montreal the next week, a crowd of more than 10,000 greeted him with shouts and banners. He was very much a man on the make. As for the killing of the Catholic and the crowd, well, just like in the Corrigan murder, there was no justice. Despite the fact that the killing took place in public in the midst of a huge crowd, no one could be found to definitively say what had happened. So Irish Catholics now had their own latest example of the failures of Canadian justice, their own Corrigan. In this case, Catholics were certain that the whole scene was tilted in favour of Protestants. Darcy McGee emerged from this whole mess as a hero, but also increasingly with someone who had enemies on both sides. Catholic and Protestant. This is because as much as McGee wanted justice for Irish Catholics, he also wanted to steer clear of violent sectarianism. He wanted moderation. The same St. Patrick's Day of 1858 led to the creation of two organizations whose members believed that more radical action was required. In Toronto, a group of Irish Catholics created the Hibernian Benevolent Society, Ostensibly, this society was just like other fraternal lodges of the era, providing a kind of insurance for members and their widows, a brothers helping brothers kind of thing. But in reality, the Hibernian Benevolent Society was also organized along paramilitary lines and was meant to be a kind of Catholic response to the worst elements of the Orange Lodge. In the coming years, it would also be linked to another organization created on that very same St. Patrick's Day of 1858, the Fenian Brotherhood. Named after a a band of legendary Irish warriors, 
the Fenians are going to show up in our story in the most influential ways in the mid-1860s. So it's worth pointing out that they were born at this time as an expression of the wish for Irish independence from Britain. In the Canadian context, Fenian supporters tended to disagree rather strenuously with Darcy McGee, who, whatever his sympathies and support for the Irish Catholic cause, still wanted to work within the system to achieve peaceful reform. This was anathema to a number of Fenians, many of whose Canadian supporters were on that very St. Patrick's Day creating the Hibernian Benevolent Society, the very organization through which the Fenians would attract Canadian support as a kind of legal front group for the terrorist organization. That, though, was somewhat in the future. In the spring of 1858, Darcy McGee, in the aftermath of the rowdy St. Patrick's Day festivities, was negotiating these different rival feelings in his own community, and also trying to find his place in Canadian politics. And, perhaps surprisingly, McGee began to make friends with George Brown, the man known for his anti-Catholicism and his resistance to separate schools, and his distaste for any official religious support by state institutions. So what on earth was this about? George Brown had spent much of the early legislative session of 1858 doing what you would expect him to do, putting forward a resolution for representation by population, of course, calling out the government for railway corruption and urging westward expansion to do something about the, the Hudson Bay Company lands and, you know, maybe think about this distant British colony in the Pacific, which was that very year in the midst of a gold boom, you know, the Fraser Valley Gold Rush. But Brown was also busy trying to figure out how on earth he could ever come to power in order to put some of his ideas into place. It was true that more upper Canadians were beginning to understand the logic of the case for representation by population. The key obstacle, though, was how to win over support in Lower Canada. And that's where overtures to Liberals came into play, to people like Darcy McGee, who was Liberal in principle, though still independent. It also meant reaching out, as Brown did that year, to the principal Liberal, or that is Rouge, in the eastern section, Antoine Aimé Dorian. All through the spring of 1858, George Brown and Darcy McGee played nicely with each other, slowly and publicly coming around to endorsing some of the ideas of the other. For McGee, this meant publicly stating that representation by population surely made sense as an idea of governance. And Brown, in reaching out to McGee, but even more so in reaching out to the Rouge leader Dorian, talked about how there could be guarantees built into a system of representation by population some kind of special constitutional guarantee to the eastern section that would ensure it wouldn't be swamped. Perhaps this could come from the creation of a federal system that gave each section autonomy in its own affairs. Brown didn't profess to have all the answers, but he sent out overtures, basically saying, if you have any ideas, let me know. As long as you, the Rouge of Lower Canada, agree in principle to rep by pop, I can sell this to my supporters but then I'm open to guaranteeing some form of local autonomy. Education, of course, would be a sticking point, especially for someone like Darcy McGee and his Catholic supporters. But Brown and McGee believed they might have a solution. Perhaps Ireland itself could be the answer, 
Ireland had handled the whole religious education issue by creating a common state system in which students sat together for almost all subjects, which is what George Brown wanted, but then went into their own groups for religion, which is what McGee was increasingly saying that he could live with. Why not try the Irish solution? Now, in reality, the Irish solution was no solution at all, uh, which any educational expert could have told them. And a man named Edgerton Ryerson, who headed up the education system in Upper Canada, would eventually say this when the negotiations came out into the open. The system in Ireland had actually veered away from this ideal to the point where, in reality, there were separate schools for the denominations. But in the world of political theory, when you were trying to build a coalition, these practicalities didn't matter. And Brown and McGee, and also to a certain extent Dorian, began to think about how they could build a reform coalition to rival that of the government's coalition of Macdonald and Cartier. It was in theory quite possible, or so it seemed to Brown in the very tentative, not at all yet tested, arena of his mind. Now, while we're in the realm of tentative and interesting theories, ideas that might work to solve the Canadian dilemma of intense regional and religious sectionalism, it's worth touching on one more topic this week. And that is this quaint little idea that perhaps the solution to the Canadian dilemma might come in the form of a confederation of the colonies of British North America. It is in these years that a few figures begin to tease out this idea. The Rouge leader Dorian, back in 1856, had even raised this possibility in Parliament. It had, of course, gone nowhere. But Brown certainly had remembered, and he'd used Dorian's support for this idea as a starting point to, beginning, uh, to begin to talk about a kind of coalition with him. In the summer of 1858, another political figure, this one from Sherbrooke in the eastern townships of what is now Quebec, made his own case for a wider federation of British North America. The man was Alexander Tillich Galt, a railway entrepreneur of almost unparalleled genius. Galt had been behind some of the biggest and most successful railway ventures of the age. In early July, Galt rose in the assembly to speak to a motion to create either two or three provinces out of Canada in a federal union. To expand this union, to the other colonies in British North America, and to bring in the Hudson's Bay Company lands in the West with a local government of their own. Sound like a familiar idea that just might work? It should, because this is exactly what is eventually going to happen. Many members agreed in principle. The idea seemed destined to become a reality, but surely not yet. And so Galt's proposals went unanswered for the moment. They didn't yet seem necessary, at least not quite yet. Later that month, though, the government would fall, and Galt would, sort of, find his place and his idea would gain a bit of life, if only briefly. But the fall of the government and the ensuing glorious controversy that was called the Double Shuffle will need to wait until next day. Let's leave our story here, in the summer of 1858, in a Canada still riven with sectional differences, with a government led by a liberal conservative party that professed to govern for the whole colony, but which increasingly was upheld by a majority in the eastern section over and above the interests and wishes of some of those in the western half, with Irish Catholics demanding justice, 
with Protestants as convinced as ever that there could be no justice in the Eastern section, and with George Brown hoping, dreaming, that something could be different. All of these ideas and tensions reverberated through Canadian politics in 1858, right up until the point when a little hick town, a lumbering centre in the middle of nowhere, took centre stage. This was Ottawa, and as expected, Her Majesty Queen Victoria had declared that this place, this little place with almost no one to speak for it, not Montreal, not Quebec, not Toronto, not even little old Kingston, was to be the capital. Nope, it was going to be Ottawa. And that's when things got interesting. Thanks for listening to 1867 and all that. If you like what you've heard, uh, please leave a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. Tell your friends, send me a note. I'm always happy to hear from you. Next week, we come to one of the most beautifully eccentric stories in all Canadian political history, the infamous double shuffle. If this means nothing to you now, don't worry, all will be explained. It's a story of political intrigue and plotting, clever maneuvering that was probably a little too clever, and ultimately grievous disappointment for George Brown. The kind of disappointment that either wrecks you or makes you rethink your life and sets you on a new path. 1867 and all that is created by me, Christopher Dummett. This year, it's also funded by you, the listeners. For $5 a month, you can become an 1867 and all that patron, a real-life supporter of history and action. Thanks to all of those of you who have already become patrons. I really, really appreciate it. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that. All that.